Good morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Exodus chapter 20, please. Chapter 20. Father, um, this is your word, not mine. These are your people, not mine. Would you help me to say this morning what you want said, and in a way that you want your people to hear it? In the name of Jesus, who is our only hope, not only for this third commandment, but for all of life and death. Amen. On January 8, 1697, Thomas Aikenhead stood on the gallows near Edinburgh, Scotland. The hangman pulled away the ladder, the body swung, and the 19-year-old theology student was dead. His crime? Blasphemy. He had dragged God's name through the mud, and he was hanged. Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Leviticus 24. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian and a man of Israel, fought in the camp, and the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses, and they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and speak to the people of Israel, saying, All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. He had dragged God's name through the mud, and he was stoned. Our question and answer this morning, uh, and I'm going to shorten it to just a third one, and I want us to, oh, is the whole thing up there? Okay, we'll read the whole thing. <laughs> question and answer together, ready? What does God require in the first, second, and third commandments? First, that we know and trust God as the only true and living God. Second, that we avoid all idolatry and do not worship God improperly. Third, that we treat God's name with fear and reverence, honoring also his word and works. Before I go on, I just want to say, uh, Steve, thank you for those two sermons on the first two commandments. Uh, I don't know if it's the right terminology for a sermon or not, but they were home runs, man. Um, Jan and I were out of town, but we listened to them, and um, thank you, thank you. You set the table so well for the following commandments, which those first two commandments do, by the way. They set the table for everything that comes in the commandments. This morning's message is uh, at times going to be pretty earthy, uh, straightforward, practical, uh, possibly uncomfortable for some of you. I don't know any other way to handle this honestly than to do it that way. Now, this morning, I'm not going to advocate hanging or stoning for those who drag God's name through the mud. If we did that, 
there would be no one left to hang or stone the last man standing. What I do want to advocate, however, this morning is that I think we have misunderstood and very possibly underapplied this third commandment. And I'm going to be using the pronoun, plural pronoun, we, this morning, because I want you to know, as honestly as my heart can speak, I am as guilty of this as you are. When FDR met King George of England for the first time, his greeting was, hello, George. When JFK was introduced to someone, say his name was James Smith, he would say, nice to see you, Jimbo. It's obviously a power play at work. When someone changes your name on you, they have taken charge of the relationship. The third commandment takes away any of that stuff out of play with God. He alone is in charge of his name. He didn't give us his name to use as we please, but only as he pleases. And frankly, um, I've learned that the list of uses that please him is a lot shorter than I thought. I want to deal with five questions this morning. What is the name of the Lord? What does vain mean? How do we break this commandment? How do we use his name rightly? And what happens when we don't use it rightly? First, what is the name of the Lord? Uh, other more detailed catechisms than the one we are studying uh, give this answer to that question, what's the name of the Lord? Everything by which he is pleased to make himself known. That's what the name of the Lord means. So the natural question is, well, how has he made himself known? And the answer is, by his names, Yahweh, Adonai, Elohim, um, by his uh, titles, creator, by his attributes, justice, love, omnipotence, etc., cetera, uh, by his uh, ordinances, the Lord's table, baptism, by his word, both the written word, the Bible, and the living word, Jesus himself, and his works, creation, providence, salvation. Those, that's, that's all involved in the name of God. God's name is synonymous with his godness, who he is and what he does. His name is about everything that has to do with him. When we speak a name of God, and we have a number of names of God in the scriptures, we're not just identifying him. We are defining him. Now, names don't do that for us anymore. When I say, uh, good morning, Dan, I'm not thinking about expressing all that you are in your humanness. I'm simply identifying you as a particular person with a particular name. But when I say, good morning, God, I am not simply identifying him as a particular being with a particular name. By verbalizing that name, I am expressing all that he is in his godness. And in the case of Jesus, all that he is in his godness and in his humanness. For example, think of how we end our prayers. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now, what do we mean? Hopefully not uh, over and out or uh, catch you tomorrow. We, what we mean is something like this. Father, I know I can pray this prayer in the name of Jesus because of who he is, how he lived his human life, what he did for me, and where he is right now. 
And if this prayer is not in line with all of that and what he wants, then I don't want it either. You see, the name Jesus is the safety deposit box for all of his humanness and all of his godness. It is holy. It is sacred. It is to be protected. And only certain keys will open it. Now, with that in mind, how do you feel about hearing or possibly saying out of anger or frustration, Jesus Christ? Or even, geez. See, this is exactly why we see such a connection between the glory of God and the name of God in the scriptures. First Chronicles 16, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. And we've talked about this, Steve talked about it a couple weeks ago, that glory means weight. The name of the Lord is one of heavy weight and he calls us to treat it that way. And when we don't, we minimize, we underestimate, and we even at times scorn the name of the Lord, treating it as though it were light and insignificant rather than heavy to be gloried in. And all of that describes October 20, October 30, 2016. Someone said, now in the 21st century, the letters G-O-D spell nothing. God is a name for whatever a person thinks or feels him to be, a, a good guy in the sky, a figment of imagination, a, an energizing principle, may the force be with you, or a name to be used as a filler for a poor vocabulary, or to curse someone with. And that just should not be so for us, beloved. The law of God requires us not to take his name in vain. That's why Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy, totally set apart from any other name, be your name. Michael Horton, in his book on the Ten Commandments, quotes uh, Gary North, and I'm going to include more quotes this morning than I normally do, although I normally do use quotes, as you know. Uh, when I'm taught or impacted by the words of someone, I assume that some of you will be also, and I just don't want you to miss that. And there are a number of them this morning. Here's one. One way for a modern American to begin to understand this commandment is to treat God's name as trademarked property. In order to gain widespread distribution for his copyrighted repair manual, the Bible, and also to capture greater market share for his authorized franchise, the church, God has graciously licensed the use of his name to anyone who will use it according to his written instructions. It needs to be understood, however, that God's name has not been released into the public domain. God retains legal control over his name and threatens serious penalties against the unauthorized misuse of this supremely valuable property. All trademark violations will be prosecuted to the full limits of the law. The prosecutor, judge, jury, and enforcer is God. So that's the name of the Lord. Now, what does the word vain mean? Here's just a bunch of words. Frivolous, insincere, thoughtless, uh, unreal, unsubstantial, worthless, uh, no real value, idle, uh, no significance, 
no importance, purposeless. The root idea is groundless or unsubstantial. God, in a sense, is saying, don't take my name and empty it of value by making it another common, inconsequential word. Vain naming, and I'm going to use that phrase a number of times this morning, vain naming is speaking of God in a way that empties his name of its real meaning, its real power, its real beauty. And a common form of this vain naming is taking the name of Jesus Christ and using it to express anger, to belittle someone, uh, to express frustration, to, to swear. It's, it's actually theft. It steals sacred words and symbols from God, twists and perverts them, and makes those words do the exact opposite of what they're supposed to do. The name that should bring life brings death the way it gets used sometimes. Jesus becomes associated with activities that he came to actually save us from. Or think of what happens to the symbol of the cross when the KKK burns it in front of a black man's house. The cross becomes a symbol of hatred and a roadblock to shalom or peace instead of a doorway to shalom. When the cross or the name of the Savior on the cross or the name of God becomes vain named, things get turned on their head and God's chosen way to communicate the gospel to us is prostituted. But now, vain naming does not rob God of his holiness. Uh, that, That cannot be corrupted. But it steals his own language by which he desires to display the glory of his holiness and the love of his gospel. So, how do we break this commandment? If you ask the average person on the street that question, most times the answer will be, oh, swearing, right? And that, swearing. Uh, Sometimes they might add perjury, you know, under oath you, you lie. Uh, But that just scratches the surface. Uh, Commentator Duncan says this. This commandment is as broad as life. The third commandment means not only don't speak God's name wrongly, not only don't write God's name wrongly, not only don't use God's name wrongly, but whenever you take up God's name, make sure you take it up aware of being consistent with his holiness. Don't claim his name unless you treat it with reverence and respect. Now, it's actually possible for a person to never swear or never lie under oath and yet be in God's sight, maybe far worse than an habitual swearer or a liar. Because it's very broad, as we're going to see. Now, even though swearing is the easiest vain speaking practice to identify, I'm I'm not going to skip over it this morning. Because I believe that um, many of us, if not all of us, have been sort of sucked into the swearing vortex of the world. And I want to address three areas of vain naming. And first is blasphemy. Blasphemy. Now, I want to get something out of, out of the way right away. Profanity, blasphemy, and vulgarity are two different issues. The third commandment has nothing to do with vulgarity. 
David Gill writes, vulgar talk usually refers to sexual acts, to our excretory functions, or to the body parts involved in these. In other words, the use of the F word, the S word, and words like that. That is not vain naming. It certainly doesn't make it acceptable. Listen to Paul, Colossians. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Those of you who are in DBG groups right now, last no, two weeks ago, you studied Ephesians 4. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Has the F word ever given grace? And this week in DBG, you're studying Ephesians 5. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking, which are out of place. So for, for this morning, enough about vulgarity. That's, that's that. What the third commandment is speaking to in our culture are words spoken in anger or frustration or excitement or surprise or just because we have a poor vocabulary. Words like Jesus Christ, damn Gee, damn it, or gee, damn you. Go to hell. And others like that. Now, you may be questioning me on the damn word, but it means to condemn to a fate, and only God can do that. So I'm invading his territory when I use that word. Some of you right now are thinking, oh, phew, okay, I'm, I'm in the clear. I don't, I don't use any of those words. Uh, keep listening. <laughs> How about, uh, oh, my God. Albuquerque Pastor Ryan Kelly says this, granted, it is possible to speak the words, oh, my God, and not sin. These words may begin a prayer at a moment of a shocking tragedy, but surely that tragic scenario is a world away from today's thoughtless, needless uses. These phrases litter the speech we hear. OMG are three of the most frequently typed letters on social media and in texts. These are useless, thoughtless fillers used for anything and everything that is barely amusing or surprising. Is he right? Let's put this into perspective. How many times when someone says, OMG, are they actually addressing God? Praying from their heart something like, oh my God, please deal with this for us. Or, or even, oh my God, thank you for this exciting news. How often? If not, it's vain naming. Now, I'm thinking some of you are sitting here thinking, this is a little overboard. Give, give me a break. But I'm thinking that what God might be saying is, you're just a little underwhelmed by my name. And if we carelessly and thoughtlessly drop OMGs into our speech, there's a glory gap that needs to be closed. There are legitimate uses. Psalm 25, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh my God, in you I trust. Psalm 40, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay. Oh my God. 
Now, some of you are still thinking, okay, I'm still, I'm still okay. I, I, don't, I don't use that one. Hang on. We Christians have become euphemistic geniuses at figuring out appropriate ways to swear. Remember what a euphemism is. The use of a less direct word or phrase for one considered offensive. Here's just a list. Here we go. This is Christianese swearing. Gosh, ye gads, by Jove, jeez, she's, gee whiz, cripes, jeepers, by jingo, jeezers, by jeezers, Jiminy Cricket, Jiminy Christmas, Jumpin' Catfish, Jeepers Creepers, Jeezy Creasy, Judas Christophers, all of which begin with JC. Lordy, Lottie, Darn, Dern, Dang, Doggone It, The Man Upstairs, Good Lord, Lord Have Mercy, T-shirt at an evangelical conference, This Blood's for You. I doubt if there's any one of us in here who have not spoken like that, maybe within the last two days. Have you ever heard or used this rationalization? It's just a word. He knows I don't mean anything blasphemous. But the third commandment is in fact about a word, a name. God's name isn't empty. It isn't frivolous. It isn't insincere. And when we use it that way, he hears those others as a substitution for his name. And he hears it as vain naming. Jesus said in Matthew 12, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Others say this, I, I just grew up around this language. Or, uh, you know, come on, it's part of being the boys, you know? Or it's not really what's in my heart. Or somebody will come to the defense of another. Well, she has a problem with her tongue, but she has a heart of gold. No, she doesn't. Matthew 12 says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Others may say, oh, that, that wasn't my intent. I just wasn't thinking. That's precisely the problem. God does want us to think about this. And if we carelessly and thoughtlessly use God's name, then his significance is not gripping our mind and our heart like it actually should. And I think I'm talking to every one of us in here this morning. In the Old Testament, God actually killed people for this stuff. And then some will say, well, that's the Old Testament. So God's more lax about it now, about his name? Is this really not the third commandment, but now it's become the third suggestion? I don't think so. You see, if we're going to know God, then we must know God according to his terms. And those terms are really clear that he and his name will be regarded and used as holy by all people. Blasphemy. Second, flippancy. If all we needed to do to keep the third commandment was to avoid saying certain unacceptable words or phrases, it would probably be the easiest of the ten commandments to keep. 
But it's much broader than that. Uh, H. Crosby says this, taking God's name in vain is the flippant and thoughtless use of God's name. It is the taking up the name in the vacant, purposeless way in which we pluck off a leaf as we pass along the road. Not only where the purpose is evil, but where there is no defined purpose at all. There may even be a purpose of good, but this purpose may be seized upon in so rash and ill-advised a way that the use of the divine name in it is a taking the name in vain. Here's one that nailed me. And I, I know this one has room for debate. I, I know that. God bless you. Do you think that every time someone says God bless you to you that they really mean it? Do you think that in their heart they are actually asking God to bless you or at least experiencing at that moment a heart desire, even if they don't speak words, a heart desire for you that he would bless you? Or is this at times just a, a spiritual filler when saying goodbye? It could be, could be good, right? What is, what's funny? You said bye-bye. Who's, I said bye-bye? I missed it. <laughs> that, that's, that's a detriment of uh, having a little bit of a hearing problem. <laughs> Thank you for that contribution. Uh, whoever you were, I love it. Many of you have received emails or texts from me that ended with blessings to you, or simply blessings. And obviously I meant God bless you, uh, because I can't. I can't bless you. I mean, God's got to be the one to do that. Now, do you think that I was actually calling on God to bless you before I hit send? I will be from now on. If I don't use that name with integrity, I'm just flippantly using it, and that is vain naming. How about these? I'm talking flippancy. God told me to, or worse, God told me to tell you, or I have a word from the Lord, or God says that if you send in this much money, you'll be blessed, or I know this is God's will for me to, and I could go on and on, but you get the point, right? Before we say God said, we'd better make sure he really said it. It's always safer to let your statement reflect the possibility that you may be wrong. Just a possibility. Saying, I sense God is telling me to, rather than God is telling me to, may not sound as authoritative and spiritual, but it could keep you or me from breaking the third commandment. How about this for flippancy? Um, our Catholic friends saying the Our Father over and over and over 15 times. But now let's come to ourselves, Protestants. In prayer, using God, Lord, Father, Father God, over and over and over, without purpose over and over and over. Sometimes 
sometimes 50 to 100 times in one prayer, often merely using it simply as a stopgap while thinking what to say next. See, it's just flippant. It's, it's... And Jesus had something pretty profound to say about vain repetition. This one has really changed what goes on in my mind when I pray. Uh, I, was, I was hit by this one. Uh, I don't think I suffer from repetition, but I am, I am guilty of starting a prayer with Father or Lord. That's usually how I start my prayers. But then as I go on to not, to not consciously remember that I am actually talking to my Father or my Lord... And it kind of gets like into the realm of I'm thinking I'm talking to those who are around me when I pray. And I don't think about what he's thinking when he hears my words. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to pray with Will Rumbaugh in a small group setting. He's one of our elders. Will will pray a few sentences and then pause. And I mean really pause. It's like, is he, is he done? After a few years of this in elder meetings, and this was just a few months ago, I couldn't take it any longer. So I asked him, I said, well, what's going on during all those pauses? And here's what he said. His answer was swift and simple. I'm thinking and wondering what God wants me to say next. Now that's acknowledging the Lord our God and the holiness of his name, and that is getting away from flippancy. And between will, as an example, and the study for this commandment, I feel like I'm learning how to pray all over again. And that's just not said because I happen to be up in front of you this morning. I'm trying to make a strong point. I mean, my prayer life the last month and a half is, is, there's a different consciousness in how I'm praying. And for that, I am so grateful. I am so grateful. Still talking about flippancy. How about flip words like, God is rad. He's my dad. We think that's so cool. You know, we'll put that on bumper stickers. That's vain naming. Or words that become flipped because of how we use them. Uh, when praise the Lord or similar catchphrases just roll off our tongues as Christians, uh, kind of as the equivalent of, that's great. Why don't we just say, that's great? If we really mean praise the Lord for that, then say it. But how many times have you said that when it's just a, you know, something kind of heavy? Exciting to say, well, praise the Lord, meaning, well, that's something, that's really great. And you're not thinking about praising the Lord at that moment. I'm not. Michael Horton says this, casual use of God's name is prohibited precisely because it wears away our sensitivity to the enormous reverence we owe it. Once we are able to think lightly of God's name, even in our discussions with other Christians, even when our intentions are pious, it is not so difficult to lower our perception of the market price of God's name. Uh, A.W. Pink, a, a, a scholar from I don't know, early to mid 20th century. God's name is taken in vain by us when we use it without due consideration and reverence. 
whensoever we make mention of him before whom the seraphim veil their faces, we ought seriously and solemnly to ponder his infinite majesty and glory and bow our hearts in deepest prostration before that name. We must not speak of the great God promiscuously and at random. That name is not to be sported with and tossed to and fro upon every light tongue. Oh, my reader, form the habit of solemnly considering whose name it is you are about to utter. That is, that it is the name of him who is present with thee, hearing thee pronounce, pronounce it, who is jealous of his honor, and who will dreadfully avenge himself upon those who have slighted him. Powerful words. If I were Satan, I couldn't think of a better way to trivialize such an important commandment than to fool people into thinking that its focus only is on, geez, dang, and words like that. It's on the flippant use also, not just the profane use of God's name. Third, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, remember, is professing and accepting to be or do one way, but then being and doing another way. Uh, Alexander McLaren writes this, we take his name in vain when we speak of him unworthily. Many a glib and formal prayer, man, I have done that. Many a mechanical or self-glorifying sermon, I'm sure I've done that, I hope I haven't, comes under the lash of this prohibition. Professions of devotion far more fervid than real. Confessions in which the conscience is not stricken. Orthodox teachings with no throb of life in them. Unconscious hypocrisies of worship and much besides are gibbeted here. The most vain of all words are those which have become traditional stock in trade for religious people, which once expressed deep convictions and are now a world too wide for the shrunk faith which wears them. When we talk and act Christ-like, but it's just a front for a heart that is not in sync, we're vain naming. Can I say something here? Um, well, that's a dumb question. I've got the microphone. I can... <laughs> I'm a bit concerned about some of us in our Sunday morning worship service. We come to uh, corporately worship and honor the name that we've been talking about this morning. And when we begin at 10 o'clock, there are, um, at the most, 40 people in here, out of 200 or so. Um, Jan and I attended a play in Crossville, Tennessee last week with about 400 other people. It started at 2.30 in the afternoon, and at 2.25, there were only four or five empty seats. Same thing happens every time you go to a symphony, go to a concert, everybody's there in time. I couldn't help but compare that to our worship service. I'll let you make that comparison. However, I, I dream of the day when we're mostly all here at 10 a.m. preparing our hearts to be ready to corporately honor God in his name. I dream of that day. Now, I also want you to know, I'm a greeter in the back, usually. So when you come in late next week, I'm not thinking about you that you're late. Please understand that. I'm laying this between you and God, and if you just are a late person or for some reason you come late, that's between you and God, so... I'm not thinking bad things about you. Then there's something else, um, and I am so guilty of this. We're singing about the great name of our God in worship, praising him for who he is, and, and I'm mouthing the words, but I'm looking around to see who's here. And for me, who I need to talk to afterwards. 
So I'm saying, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. And I'm looking to see our Paul and Carol Rysak here because I've got Carol's water bottle that I need to give to her this morning. Now, I knew I was going to say this. This is so hard to do. You can't believe how hard it was for me to sit there back there in the back row and not look around and see who was here and still be mouthing the words. But do you get me? Do you, do you get what that is? Now, some of you never do that. I'm serious. When you get here, you are all in. I can tell by your body language. But again, I only know that because I'm looking around at you. <laughs> do you see how tricky but how subtle and deep all this is? Here's what I'm trying to say. I think it's very easy to fall into hypocrisy and worship. Jesus, quoting Isaiah 29, says this, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. If you're going to stand and look around at people, don't sing the words. Thomas Watson said, Pretended holiness is merely double wickedness. By the way, it's for that very reason that I've never put a fish on my car. Do you get it? Or other Christian-type bumper stickers, because I know how I drive. I want to end with the flip side of all this. How do we use God's name rightly? Every negative command has its implied positive. So there must be a way to use the name of God in a way that is not profane, not flippant, not hypocritical, he didn't give us his name for no reason. And, and by the way, for us to be given and to know his, his name, his covenant name and his redeeming name and his powerful name and his peace name and his, his provision name and all those names of God that he's given to us, for us to be able to have that and hold that in our hands, in our hearts, is to have special access, a special privilege of access to him to praise and, and, and glorify him. For me to be able to pray for you and, and me to pray for myself and to, and to use that name to seek comfort and, and direction and, and strength when things come along and to be in touch with the eternal trinity, to, to have the name of, he didn't have to give us his name. He could have just kept this thing anonymous. But he gave us those names which are in the name of Jesus above every name. Given that privilege of articulating that name above all names and, and then to live in harmony with all that those names mean may be alongside the cross and the empty tomb the most stupendous gift he has ever given to us. And when I look at it that way, all of the profane and flippant and hypocritical ways I use that name are like a knife of sorrow to my heart. And at a time like that, I want to desperately cry out Psalm 8. Oh, Lord, my Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And Psalm 86 then, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your excellent name. And then Psalm 103, I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name name all you are through my speech. 
John Calvin puts it this way. We ought to be so disposed in mind and speech that we neither think nor say anything concerning God and his mysteries without reverence and much soberness. That in estimating his works, we conceive nothing but what is honorable to him. Anything pertaining to God should be spoken of with the greatest sopriety. Now, fifth, what happens when we don't use his name rightly? Because every one of us breaks the third commandment in one way or another. When we do, the law knocks us back and knocks us down, doesn't it? It, it, And you feel so hopeless. Because we're told, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. I'm guessing a few of you at least are thinking that a lot of what I've said this morning sounds like legalism. You know, a list of uh, words that you, you can't say, and at the end of the day, you check and see how you did. That's not where I am. I, I'm just talking about simple obedience. And, it, and it's not obedience to gain points with God. And if you don't obey, to lose points with God. That's legalism. That's not what I'm talking about. I personally, I'm talking to myself personally now, I personally am looking at this as a spiritual discipline. I want to use God's name rightly, and I don't want to use it wrongly. I really don't. So I am going to discipline myself in that. And that means I'm going to pay attention to what I say. I'm going to ask some of you, and you already know who you are, to call me on it when I, when I do it. And then I want to repent and confess when I blow it. And I want to rejoice when I'm tempted to vain name, but don't. And then I want to thank the Spirit of God for growth when it actually happens in my life. And that is the crucial part. See, I don't cause the growth by my fastidious discipline. All I'm doing is placing myself in a position with this discipline for the spirit to do for me what I can't do for myself. I cannot transform my heart so that my tongue stops vain naming. Only he can. In the sermon questions for this week, I'll have you go to James 3. I don't have time to go there this morning. But in those disciplines, I can lay myself open to be transformed. That's what, that's what all of the spiritual disciplines are about. They are saying, I'm serious about this, Father. Please change my heart. They are incredibly important, but also incredibly deficient in and of themselves. It's it's like building a fire. I gather the paper, I gather all the kindling, I I stack up all the logs, but without a spark of some kind, there's going to be no campfire. And spiritual disciplines are kind of like gathering and piling up everything for, for the fire, but then trusting the Spirit of God for the spark that ignites all of that. You know, we discipline ourselves to pray. We discipline ourselves to, to, to give. We discipline ourselves to, to fast, to study the Bible, uh, to get alone with God. And we do those because those are means of grace from God for us in which he tends to meet us in meaningful ways. So why do I gather all the material for fire of using God's name rightly and not vain naming? Because he commanded me, don't take my name in vain. And I want him to empower me to carry that out certainly for the health of my own heart, but also for the sake of others. 
We have an opportunity, beloved, to live out the catechism, to live out the truths of the Bible we're learning in the catechism in the front of other people, and they will notice. If your tongue is different in your arenas of influence, over time it will show. If you only bless and honor God with his name and his terminology, he will give you opportunities to even talk a little bit more deeply about that. Spurgeon, um, boy. Spurgeon tells us this uh, metaphor. The master came one night to the door and knocked with the iron hand of the law. The door shook and trembled upon its hinges, but the man piled every piece of furniture he could find against the door, for he said, I will not admit the man. The master turned away, but by and by he came back, and with his own soft hand, using most that part where the nail had penetrated, he knocked again softly. This time the door did not shake, but strange to say, it opened. And there upon his knees, the once unwilling host was found rejoicing to receive his guest and said, I yield, I yield, thy love has won my heart. See, guys, what, what Moses with the iron hand of the law could never do, Christ with his pierced hand does. The pounding iron hand requires the blood of the one being pounded on, but the welcoming pierced hand shed its own blood for the ones, you and I, who are being welcomed. And it's not the iron hand that we celebrate here. It's the pierced hand. Come, to me with, come with me to the house of Caiaphas when Jesus was on trial. Matthew 26. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. And the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. He is sentenced to death for sin against the third commandment. He has spoken blasphemy. He's guilty of death. And though not a blasphemer, he was led out of Jerusalem to his cross as a blasphemer. And then all of your and my sins of profanity and flippancy and hypocrisy were taken and they were dumped on him. Each and every one of them. And recorded as his liability. So that now you can come to the table in repentance you can come to the table and receive mercy and be held guiltless. Oh, guiltless. And then the next time you vain name, because you and I probably will, we can repent and come to the cross for mercy and again be held guiltless. And here's the beautiful part. And as you and I do that faithfully, 
The Spirit of God will do his work of transformation in us. If we are that serious about it, he will do his work of transformation in us. And our trips to the cross for that sin will become less and less frequent as he transforms us. That is the good news. The good news is the law is not for you. It's been, it's been taken care of. The good news is mercy is yours and grace. Again, this morning, I want you to pray your own prayer to the Father at this point. I don't want to speak words for you. So as we get ready to serve you, would you pray silently? All of these prayers, Father, we offer up in the matchless name of your son, our brother, Jesus Christ. Amen.